Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is the Unraveled Podcast with hosts Caleb Aring and Nicole Richards. Join us as we unravel a new case every season. You are listening to Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. I'm Caleb Aring. I'm Nicole Richards. And you're listening to Unraveled. Last week, we mentioned that this was going to be our very last episode, and at the end of last week, we left off after Tommy and Carl had both had their second trials. Um, They were both uh, sentenced to life in jail. Um, Ultimately, Carl was originally sentenced to uh, the death penalty, and that was overturned, and he was given life without parole, and Tommy was given life with the possibility of parole after 21 years, which um, would have been in 2010. So at the end of the last episode, we said that, you know, this episode, we would start off by telling you where the two of them are now. Um, And if you've been listening to this podcast, you know, we said in the very first episode that we were going to unravel this case for you and leave it for you to decide whether you thought that the wrong people were in jail, whether you thought that Tommy and Carl are, in fact, guilty of these crimes. Um, And I'm sure there are some people out there who maybe think that they are guilty, who think that um, they they found a way to commit these crimes and that uh, these confessions are real. I think that it has become obvious probably throughout the course of this podcast that Nicole and I feel differently. Nicole, I don't want to speak for you, but I know I don't believe that Tommy and Carl committed this crime. I believe that there's somebody out there, at least one person out there, um, who did this and who unfortunately has gotten away with it. Yeah, I would say I definitely agree with that statement. Um, I mean, I went into the case when I very first started looking into it with a bit of uh, trying to hold on to maybe maybe this justice had been served and that this case did, um, you know, find the two people who had done this. And I think the more and more we went through this case, it, w- it has become very clear to me that I do not believe that... Um, the two men that have gone to jail are the ones who committed this crime. I think, unfortunately, uh, now we are so far removed from from that time, and and we have so little evidence, um, and we have so little available to work with, and we have these powerful confession tapes that, um, you know, being able to backtrack and really go down the multiple paths that were laid out that showed these other potential people who had maybe committed this crime now feel almost lost, um, which is, is unfortunate. And, but I would agree. I, I do not, I think the, we have tried to, to paint a very clear picture that there were a lot of points that, um, 
that were not handled correctly and I think has led to two men spending now well into their adult lives in prison. Yeah, and so and so that's where they are now is, you know, Tommy and Carl, they're both still in prison. They're both in Oklahoma being held in separate prisons. Um, and I believe wrongfully so. I don't know how our listeners feel, and I imagine that different listeners will feel differently um, about whether or not they are in the right place. I know um, from the evidence that I've seen and... and really the lack of evidence that I've seen. Um, I don't really see anything besides a confession uh, that links Tommy and Carl to these crimes. And I really think, you know, after talking to Jim Trainum and hearing about false confessions, hearing about the tactics that are utilized by police and, and reading Tommy's account about the things that happened Um, leading up to that confession, which, like we mentioned, all we have is Tommy's account of what happened leading up to that confession. Uh, There's no record from the police uh, or investigators who were part of that confession on on what their side of that story is. So so Tommy's um, memory of what happened is really what we have to work with. Um, And I don't see anything other than those confessions that links them to the crime. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, there was shoddy police work. There was a lot that wasn't preserved to be looked at. Um, and so you, we've tried to look up some information about appeals. And I know that Tommy and Carl have filed appeals early on um, after these convictions, but we're hard pressed to really find any information about them, except that they haven't had any appeals granted. Um, you know, I mentioned, like I said, that Tommy would be eligible for parole in 2010, and I know you found some information about parole hearings. Yeah, he was eligible after 21 years from his uh, his conviction date, so that would have put us in 2010. And what we see now is he has a parole hearing date um, scheduled, and it is February 2018. And uh, we were unable to find any information as to why the parole has taken this long. If the potential for parole is even there, I think you can speak more as an attorney on on what parole looks like if an individual is still claiming innocence. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that we talked about this in one of our earlier episodes, but the parole board really looks to see whether or not you've been reformed, you know, whether or not. Um, they believe that you've learned uh, your lesson, that you've learned uh, from the crime that you committed and, and that, that you've reformed yourself. And if you're still claiming that you're innocent, what that looks like to a parole board is that you are unwilling to accept responsibility for what you've done. And uh, I don't think that neither Tommy nor his current attorney have made very many public statements. Um, but from what I can find, they're still claiming Tommy's innocence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so assuming he goes into a parole board hearing and is maintaining his innocence, um, you know... You're not going to be granted yeah, parole. Yeah, the, the odds are pretty close to zero that he would get parole. So he does have a parole hearing in about a year from now, uh, but I don't see that turning anything up. And Carl um, was, we know, given a sentence of life without parole. 
Um, but he was, from what we know about Carl, he was denied an appeal in 2015. And he's actually being represented by the Oklahoma Innocence Project, um, which is somewhat new. And he's actually the very first case that they took on. Which is fascinating, yeah. Yeah, which is, is really interesting. And, and we're not totally sure why they chose his case as their first case. Um, but I think it's that's really great. Um and, they, and that should be a plug for the Innocence Project. <laughs> yeah, and so the Innocence Project is really great. And if you got if you if you're listening and you haven't heard of them, the Innocence Project um, tries to get people who they believe have been wrongfully convicted and get them exonerated. You'll see a lot more often the Innocence Project taking cases where there's actual DNA evidence um, because number one, um, they're a nonprofit. Um, so they're working on a limited budget, and it's a lot easier to get something overturned if there's some DNA evidence that can be tested. Um, but with Carl's case, this is one of the cases that they took that doesn't have DNA evidence necessarily. Now, the um, the Oklahoma Innocence Project, which is it's technically independent from the Innocence Project, but they're, they still work together. But as far as like financials or if you were going to go and make a donation, um, you know, making a donation to the Innocence Project is different from making a donation to the Oklahoma Innocence Project. Because um, the main Innocence Project is in New York City. Yes, New yes. York, New York. You can check out their website. It has amazing stories of folks who have been exonerated. It talks about how they've been exonerated. And the last I had checked their website, we were into the hundreds of people that have been exonerated on DNA mm-hmm. evidence. Um, and they will break down what had gone wrong during their trial, which I thought was really fascinating. Um, some of them are DNA evidence, but you also have case of, ter- of bad lawyering, bad investigation work, um, these really detailed events of what went wrong and how they prove that and how people had spent 10, 15, 20 years in prison before they were exonerated. It's really an amazing resource. And there's actually, there's another podcast out there that's called Actual Innocence. Um, And the woman, I I can't remember her name right now, but she interviews people who are released after they, after it's been found that they are in fact innocent. Um, So that, that uh, podcast is called Actual Innocence and that's out there if, um, if wrongful convictions and overturned convictions are something that you're interested in, um, that's worth checking out and giving a listen. Uh, but so like we said, Oklahoma Innocence Project uh, took on Carl's case. The attorney, Tiffany Murphy, who is handling the case, has said that she is still looking and believes that there might be possibility to find some sort of DNA in this case. Um, I don't I don't know if that's wishful thinking or... I mean, I'm sure that she has information that we don't have, um, but I don't know if that information is relevant to DNA. Um, I know from everything that we know about the case, the the opportunities that there were for DNA were just blown by the police. You know, the cigarette butt at McAnally's, the, the beer, beer the beer can at McAnally's, uh, even, you know, fingerprints on the um, cash register that was left open, uh, the the opportunities that were there were just literally thrown into the trash um, the night of Denise's disappearance, unfortunately. Um, And it it doesn't appear that there were opportunities for DNA evidence um, at the scene where her body was found, although it's it's not clear 
to me entirely that that there weren't opportunities, but definitely that body had been there for a while. Um, so if there had been DNA from her, her kidnapper and the person who did ultimately murder her, um, we don't know about that. Um, but what I guess what, what I'm trying to say is that there isn't any clear DNA evidence here. There's definitely nothing in evidence where you can go back and grab it and say retest this for DNA now that we have DNA and and so that's it makes it a really unique case for the Innocence Project to take it on without any clear DNA opportunity and then Nicole like you were saying that the Innocence Project filed an appeal in 2015 for Tommy that was denied um, and then they actually filed another appeal to a higher court and I don't have all of the details on it. It is available, I think, on the Oklahoma Innocence Project's website. It's really long. I think it's about 114 pages, um, but there's a lot of information in that appeal and that's also where we got a lot of the information about the medical examiner's report and the pages that had been omitted, the pages that, that stated that Denise had had a child at some point before um, before she died. Yeah, because there, because this appeal just really kind of touches in great detail on what we've talked about during the podcast and what these pieces are about the police work that was done, about the things that are not lining up, and the biggest one being that Denise's body shows signs of giving birth to a child, the, which to me is the one that really just sort of blows the case out of the water. But um, and if you really are into reading legal documents, it's all there to read. It is rather detailed and long, but um, but it does it does talk about the things that we've talked about throughout the uh, podcast. And then, meanwhile, Tommy is being represented by a private attorney, so an attorney who who isn't working for some sort of a nonprofit. And um, Tommy's attorney, Mark Barrett, has also gone on record stating that he's planning to file another appeal for Tommy and that it will likely be on many of the similar grounds to the same appeal that has been filed uh, by the Innocence Project for Carl Fontenot. Um, But that's all of the details we have about that. Um, I'm not sure if he's waiting for evidence to file it or if he's just putting it together or, or what exactly um, that strategy is there. But we do know that, that there's an intention to file an appeal um, for Tommy as well. Uh, but meanwhile, you know, we've got Tommy and Carl and they have been in jail since they were in their 20s. They're now both in their 50s. You know, they've been been in jail since um, since they were arrested, which I think was late 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been there pretty much their whole lives now. Yeah, which is a long time to be in custody. If you um, if you look up information on them, it kind of hits you when you sort of see the newest um, information about them, and, and you the realize in the newest pictures because you know um, in inmates are registered. You know, if we're going to call, but uh, they're they're registered, and you can see these pictures, and it's these pictures of older men. You know, who are now um, have spent their entire adult lives. Uh, behind bars, and and they are both in different prisons. They're not being held in the same prison. Um, they're still in Oklahoma, and um, yeah, they're adults. You know, they're adults who have spent their whole whole lives in prison, and so 
it feels to me like that really kind of, we can look at dates and we can talk about it being the 80s and we can do all of that, but when you see the pictures of, of uh, in the book of when they were young or, you know, these pictures of when these two individuals are young men when they were first arrested and then to see pictures of them now and just really try to imagine spending your entire adult life in prison. It, and uh, in prison for a crime that you didn't commit. Yeah, it, it feels... Um, it just feels overwhelming, you know, because it's, it to me, um, is not, this is not the exception. This case is not the exception. Um, this is not just a rare um, moment in the criminal justice system in the United States. This is a regular occurrence. This is business as usual. I think, um, I think a false confession tape, as we talked to Jim, I just really kind of returned to that conversation with him because so much of this case is based off of this these confession tapes. These are these are the things that really just uh, did these two guys in, and and I think when we we know that, and then we talk to someone like Jim who has such insight into how we have gotten there and how that the idea of teaching detectives how to get confessions no matter what um that that is how we do business here in the united states and 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 then i think of all the countless people that have um fallen victim to that and and that this is one case but that the it's it's in the hundreds probably if not thousands of of cases that look like this well, and I think, you know, touching on that, I think that uh, the serial podcast with Sarah Koenig really kind of brought light to this idea um, that innocent people are in jail. I think that um, people found it shocking and appalling. I mean, I, I know that there are people out there who do, in fact, uh, believe that Adnan is guilty. I'm not one of those people. I don't think you are either. Um but for a lot of people, I think that they saw that and uh, and they were appalled um, and they couldn't believe uh, that something like that would happen in our justice system. And then, you know, a little bit after that, we had the, the Netflix documentary series uh, Making a Murderer come out, um, where I think that people were, again, uh, shocked and appalled to see... Um, you know, to see what was going on. And particularly, you know, I, I think there are some mixed opinions about um, the main person in that documentary, but I think that people were, were pretty sure that um, his nephew, Brendan Dassey, was absolutely innocent and was just kind of used to, like, bully someone who was mentally ill into giving a confession. And he actually, you know, finally got... Um, out of jail this year as well, I believe. And he was another example of of watching how you can get somebody to say what you want them to say and then how damaging that is um, because it becomes the, the kind of nail in the coffin for the person, yet in his case, again, we saw that it just didn't make any sense. You know, it, it just... Somebody has said this thing, yet when you put it up against what the events of the night were, or in this case, we have these confessions, and then you put it up against the evidence that we do have, and even though that nothing lines up, it doesn't matter. It becomes like the only thing that we're focusing on is these these tapes, and I think 
I don't, I'm not sure how often we're going to have to see tapes be proven wrong before we start to reevaluate the use of confession tapes and, and what they mean and how much weight they should hold. Because, um, you know, if you ask the average person, I, I, when I share with people about this case or talk to them about the case, people's response is always the same that you, you would never, they would never confess to something they didn't do. It's just, it's people's natural reaction to it is like, well, why would you would never say something you didn't do, right? Especially murder and kidnapping and, and rape. especially to the police. You would never do that. You, no matter what, you would never do that. That you couldn't break me. You know, people get very, oh, I would never, 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 never do that. But. I think, and I believe to some extent that I would never do that still. Even hearing this case, I think, yeah, but I wouldn't do it. You know, I would, I have the information, so I really wouldn't do it. And maybe I, I think, wouldn't because I would ask for an attorney. I you think, know? one, I think, though, that's what Jim Trainum talks about. And, like, and you would ask for an attorney. You have experience in the criminal justice right, system. Right. And, and you know, you have the knowledge that, that we have having done this podcast. And I know you had a lot of that knowledge before. Yeah. But I think for... It's that mentality that your friends have of, you know, I would never confess to something I didn't do that gets people into these situations, I think, because that the that menta- part of that mentality is, of course, I'm going to talk to the police without an attorney. I didn't do anything. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to be honest. And it's not going to be a problem. But then they just start feeding you information yeah. and and I think it's actually that mentality that makes people the most susceptible to false confessions unfortunately um, and then you know and then you get a case like Tommy and Carl where literally nothing else adds up and nothing matches um, and we don't have you know we don't have anything as far as what happened during the times when the video cameras weren't on, what information was fed to them and what information wasn't to just, you know, to look at and say, look, this information was, was given to them. Mm-hmm. Um, or to say it wasn't. Maybe somehow they pulled off the perfect crime, which I don't think is the case. I think that, um, you know, I, I think that they have, below average intelligence you know I think that and, and you kind of touched on this in the last episode I think that Carl um, probably faced a lot of emotional issues throughout his life um, you know not I don't think he ever had his father in his life and, and having your the mom mother, yeah. die right you know right in front of you at, at such a young age I can imagine that um, he was probably emotionally and mentally stunted in some ways um, and then to, to put him in this situation with um, someone of superiority, someone with power, someone telling you, you know, just say this and we'll let you go or just say this and, and we'll go easy on you and you'll get to go home. And you just think, OK, you know, if all I have to do is say that I did this terrible thing, but then I can get out of this and they're going to leave me alone, then how, how bad could it be to tell this lie and I think about these confession tapes as if they're used, you know, the way they show up in the court, they're sort of they're sort of presented in this way um, as if they've happened in a vacuum, right? Like as if there's just this tape 
and this is it. This is just, just look at this tape and judge this tape, and then as a result, judge these two individuals. And I think the thing that confession tapes leave out is sort of all of the surrounding things that are happening um, that have resulted in these tapes, right? Like, they, the tapes just didn't appear as if their own sort of piece, you know? You have the history of Tommy and Carl. You have their... Uh, their intellectual ability, you have their emotional state of mind, you have their age, you have, you know, where they are. You also have the influence of a police force who have had a crime a year prior that went unsolved and the pressure of that and the pressure and politics of a small town and the way word spreads and the way you have a... And the a, way that the newspapers right. spread the word without You have the what's playing out so in the media. You have what information is given to the media and what isn't given to the media. You have this whole, you know, you have a, a, a police detective who, you know, is very close to retirement and just wants to get to the end of the road for him so he can retire and do this thing that is why he went into the job in the first place. You have all of these influences. You have all of these things happening. That, there, that You have the hours and hours of interrogation that are not videotaped. You have all of this stuff, and then you have these, and then it all kind of is this this conclusion of these tapes and then the tapes are are judged as if they were the only thing happening you know that yep these people confessed and here they are and it's on a tape and we have it case closed case closed i'm not we don't need to do police work we don't need to do look at evidence we don't need to put the evidence up against anything we don't need to do anything we don't need to find the truck we don't need to the alibis go out the window even though both of them have alibis everything just kind of ceases to exist because of these sacred tapes but yet when you look at everything that leads up and i think I think this is something that is so prevalent in our criminal justice system is like the inability to look at things in a complex way, to to look at them as let's look at everything that's going on and all the factors, you know, it's about money and and time and getting things through the system quickly, you know, case closed, uh, convictions, prisons are full, let's like make sure the beds are, we're filling the beds, people don't want to spend, you know, to be in court costs money, to get a lawyer, everything costs money and so the fastest way we can get there then that's what we're going to do and 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 unfortunately that absolutely makes the complex nature of these cases invisible they become it's gone and and I think this case demonstrates that so 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 very well and we could have taken probably a hundred cases that would have demonstrated this well but I think this case for me definitely was like why I was so interested in it is because it just really continuously shows us at every turn that, you know, the odds can be stacked against you in a way that it doesn't matter what is brought to the table. Um, Folks are still staying in prison, you know, and and I think it's, it felt shocking in so many ways, but those tapes are just really the thing I think I don't know if we're ever, if these two individuals are ever going to be able to get past them, you know, unfortunately. And, you know, hopefully they are. Like we said, there's there's a current appeal pending for, for Carl Fontenot, and um, we've been told that, or we've read in the media that, that Tommy Ward's attorney is planning to file an appeal, and Tommy has the opportunity to, to get out on parole in a year, which doesn't clear his record, um, mm-hmm. but would get him out of jail. And 
Uh, I mean, for our listeners out there who are wondering what they can do, who, I mean, I know when I first, first heard about this case years and years ago, it was, I was just like filled with this, like, what can I do? Like, this is this huge wrong. Um, and how can I make it right? Um, and, and there are different things, you know, one thing is, is donating to the Innocence Project or, you know, more specifically donating to the Oklahoma Innocence Project, who is uh, representing Carl Fontenot. Um, and another thing is just like, is spreading the word, spread the word about this podcast, spread the word about Jim Trainum, read his book, or spread the word about false confessions in general. I mean, I think that raising awareness is a really big part of of understanding that there's injustice in the criminal justice system, that it isn't it isn't all just. And the more that we know and as a society get upset about it, the more that we can demand change. But if we just look the other way and pretend that it isn't happening, it will keep happening. And I think, you know, the idea behind this podcast was really to do our best to present the facts in a neutral way, um, despite the fact that we had our own opinions, and put the facts out there for people to hear about the case and learn about the case and make their own decisions. Um, but but a lot of what we really wanted to do was raise awareness that, that there are cases like this out there, that serial and making a murder aren't isolated incidences, but that this is, like Nicole was saying, this is prevalent in the criminal justice system. And this is something that, you know, we as, as citizens really have a responsibility to not look the other way and to recognize that this is happening in our country. Yeah, I think the assumption that I always want to get away from or that I don't want to fall into is that it doesn't affect me and therefore... Um, isn't uh, affecting my life and isn't... I mean, one, we never know when we are going to be called into these positions, right? I mean, you have two individuals in this case that did not think going into this day, you know, when we first saw Tommy go down there, he went in there so innocently just to answer some questions. You know, they had some questions. They were out questioning a lot of people innocently. He went in, he answered some questions, you know, that that could easily happen to anybody, right? And And so, and I think the bigger threat of it to me is that um, when we have a system like our current criminal justice system that is so reliant on um, people needing money in order to be able to navigate it, I think is a dangerous, is a dangerous spot. You know, I think we saw very clearly that, you know, if you don't have representation, if you don't have the money for an attorney, if you don't have the money to have an investigator, if you if the odds are kind of stacked against you in that way, then the way that your case turns out is going to be impacted. And and for me to have a system that is based on somebody's uh, financial means is is beyond problematic. It's well, and we saw. I mean, Tommy came a week from being executed because you know he didn't have a he didn't have an attorney mm-hmm. at that point. He hadn't hired one for the appeal and the. His previous attorney hadn't filed paperwork. Right. And I think the assumption that, you know, yes, in in our, uh, you know, 
we have the right to an attorney if we cannot afford one. The court will appoint us one. But really kind of understanding what that means, you know, um, we were able to see in this case the difference between Tommy having a private attorney and Carl having a public defender. You know, that kind of, when it kind of comes down to these Am I going to be able to plead my case? Am I going to be able to have my day in court if I cannot afford to be there? Is is not a system that is working for us. You know, it's it's not to me how a system of justice should be set up when when the mo- when money is kind of the bottom line. I think um, I'm very very critical of the criminal justice system, and I could I could go on uh, about that forever. But I think in this case, like we saw in Syria which you're right, was this case that was brought to the masses, you know, with that kind of audience for the first time hearing that this was something that was happening, people were shocked. And I think for those of us who have worked in these systems, we were not shocked. You know, it was, yes, of course, this is what's happening. Where, where is everybody? It you was know? business as usual. Yeah. I thought, well, this is, of course, this is what's happened. You know, what do you think happens to a, a young man uh, who doesn't have, you know, who was not getting great. He had access to mon- resources. He was able to hire an attorney. But we were able to see later on as that case played out what it looks like when the attorney is not maybe up to uh, the challenge of that job at that moment. Well, and she was actually an incredible attorney who was in in, Very the, <laughs> in the heart of a, of a mental decline, like in the, in the peak of this mental decline. So even though he had this money that the system failed him in, in letting him be represented by someone who who didn't have it in her anymore to be in court representing right. someone. And we have the huge, you know, the fact of his his race and his religion and how that played out in his case. You know, these kind of details that play out in cases in courtrooms all across the country that, um, you know, the facts are presented in a different way depending on who is in front of the judge. You know, people are read different ways depending who is on, in front of the judge in the same way. You know, it's, it is a complicated uh, s- system that, you know, is doing, in my opinion, a lot of damage. And I think talking to people who have been on the inside of it, you know, there's so much being written now about about cases like this. There's like documentaries and podcasts and, and so much coming out. I think it's a it's an exciting time. I think that um, you know, prison reform is finally in a national conversation. There are there are movements being made, but but I think in a lot of ways, you know, we're just we're at the very tip of the iceberg of the amount of work that needs to be done to really have a country who has a criminal justice system that is actually interested in justice, I think is, you know, we have a long road ahead of us. And and hopefully this little podcast that we did was one bit that will bring information to maybe some people who um, didn't have it prior. Absolutely. And on that note, I want to chat a bit about our next season.
Yeah. So like we said, when we started this, we really want to make this a multi-season podcast and go over different cases each season. We want to grab another case next season and unravel it again for, for people to listen and to make their own decisions about what happened and to really look at some of the things that are going on in our criminal justice system. And Nicole, do you want to talk a little bit more about the types of cases that we're looking for for next season? Yeah, so I think that from the one challenge that we had with this case was I think uh, we were we were dealing with a case that had happened quite a few years ago um, in an area very far from where we currently are, and so it was difficult for us to have access to maybe as much files as we could have or as much documentation, or it was difficult for us to get as many interviews as we would have liked. So I think moving forward for both of us, uh, it would feel great to do a case that um, we had a bit more access to information. Anything, so whether that means it's a case that you know about, it's a case that you're personally involved with, it's something that... um, you know, you you have the ability to connect us to something that has a lot of uh, ability to to talk to people. I think that would be, for me, something that would be very important moving into our next case because um, it was one of the challenges that we had. And I would say, you know, if 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 somebody you know is in jail and, and you think maybe they're wrongfully convicted or you would want, you know, someone to, to pull apart the case and take a look at it the way that it, that we did um, with this case or more in depth, if it's something that you have documentation for, um, that would be great. Like I know with, with Serial, um, Rabia Chaudhry brought the case to Sarah Koenig and had, I think, a couple of boxes full of, of documents and material. Um, so just being able to have access to those documents, you know, we had really a limited number of of documents and information to go along with this case. And so getting, getting referred a case from one of our listeners would be amazing, particularly if it's a case that, that they can provide us information about. And then like Nicole said, even put us in touch um, with people that we could potentially interview for the podcast and get even more information. Yeah. And if that's not possible, then, you know, I would love to just hear about a case that feels compelling. You know, we can always do legwork and we can always do all of uh, the work necessary to hopefully get what we need. But I, more than anything, I think the case that we've talked about in season one, you know, this case was so compelling to me from the moment you sort of connected me to the book and the book that we read for Dreams of Ada and you know, from the get-go, it was a case that I was very, very interested in. I think it had so many twists and turns and feels so unbelievable at times that um, it was easy to, to kind of get, you know, to dive in head first. And I think moving forward, uh, I would love to have another experience to find another case that, that feels that same way. Absolutely. And, you know, we don't have an exact timeline yet for when we're going to come out with the next season. Um, Part of it will depend on uh, what case we end up taking and how much time it takes us to really uh, do research into it and get ready for a new season. Um, But I would hope that we would be up again maybe in about six months or so. Um, Either way, once we're ready to go, we'll start tweeting about it um, and we'll, we'll put information out there. And you can follow us on Twitter. Twitter. We are at Unraveled Pod. I'm at Caleb Aring, and Nicole is at Unraveled Nicole. You can always shoot us an email 
Um, and that is unraveledpod at gmail.com. And you can always check out the website to get a little bit more information about us or to you know look over season one or just check and see if we've posted anything new there. And the website is unraveledpod.com. And so those are ways that you can keep in touch with us um, even when we aren't posting every week a new episode. And like I said, we hope to be back in six months and we hope that all of you will, will come back and in the meantime also if you're listening to this um, maybe later than we've posted it um, or you're listening to it as we're posting it we would love uh, for you to tweet or email any feedback you have this is our first season we're new to um, this genre of podcasting Um, so we'd love your feedback what you liked uh, what you think we could do better um, and we will take all of that into account for next season and we'll see you next season Thank you for listening to Unraveled, Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. Your hosts are Nicole Richards and Caleb Aring. Producing, mixing, and editing done by Caleb Aring and Matt Van Horn. Music by Broke for Free. Voice talent by Joe Eager. Tune in next week to listen to more of this Case Unravel. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.